because that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> that's not good. All right. How's everybody's Christmas? Good. Good? good. Come on. What else got everybody? Got the whole group? All right. All right. This one's going to be a little short. Um, but I want you guys, I need, I need your guys' help, okay? You guys can all talk, because I think one of your parents told you not to talk last time. I don't remember who it was, but somebody told me the story. Um, all right. Do your parents, pretend like they can't hear you right now, okay? Do your parents have any rules that you don't understand? Give me one. What? Well, but give me one. Think, think through it for a second. Or have they ever had you do something that you didn't understand? I know, I know I'm putting you guys on the spot. Rack your brains. Do you feel like you felt that feeling at some point? Like maybe you're like, I don't understand why I'm doing this. Or I don't understand why I have this rule. Okay, now, take that. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, I'm going to speak on behalf of my daughters here for a second. Because we'll, we'll, we'll give them some participation. I won't put them on the spot. But um, I, I, I would have them do, like, yard work stuff. Or, or maybe, maybe, maybe worse than that. <laughs> I'd say, hey, you want to come help me work on this or that or whatever. And they knew that that meant that they were going to run back and forth to the shed and back and get me tools. And they would go... That is not fun. And they don't like it, and they never liked it. And <laughs> I mean, maybe they did a little bit. But why? Why, like, is it because I needed somebody to run and grab tools? Why do your parents have rules or have you do things that maybe just don't make a whole lot of sense? Do you think your parents are being mean to you? We'll go around the circle. You guys are all nervous, aren't you? Do you think your parents are being mean to you just to be mean to you? Just because they don't like you much? No. In, in fact, you're all smiling, because why? That's ridiculous, isn't it? In fact, even when you don't understand what your parents are doing, what do you know about your parents? This is the time when you guys get dessert tonight, if you say the right thing. What do you guys know about your parents? They love you. They love you. Yes. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> I, they said they'd get you dessert tonight. There you, there you go, Ferens. <laughs> um, right? Like, you know that they love you. And so even when you don't understand what's going on, you kind of just trust that, don't you? Even when the rules seem unfair or when you're getting in trouble for something that you're like, well, I felt like I had a good reason for that, but like, you kind of don't understand, but you... You trust your parents. You trust who they are. You trust that they love you and care for you. And you're right. They do love you and care for you. And so this morning what we're going to talk about is that that relationship with our parents is the exact same as our relationship with God. In fact, things are going to happen in your life that are going to be tough. And God's going to say, you should do this and you shouldn't do that. And he says that not because... He doesn't like you. He says that because he loves you. And this is the best thing for you. And so he knows what's best for you, and he loves you. And so even when you don't understand what's going on, you can trust God like you trust your parents, which is pretty cool. You good with that? All right, you guys got to think through times when you don't understand, and then talk to your parents about it. Sound good? I don't have crosswords, though, for you, so you guys are just going to have to listen to me. Is that okay? All right. Have a good time. Thanks. All right. Uh, yeah, so if you don't have a Bible, there are some. You can raise your hand. Tim will, Tim will hand you some if you need one. Um, otherwise, you can open up your phone and... and um, um, Thought I forgot my notes for a second. That was going to be a really. Um, starting off in Ruth. So we're going to start off the new year. Probably not how, you know, 
if you were like strategizing how to how to schedule sermon series in a year or something like that, you probably wouldn't start with tragedy. But uh, we're starting in Ruth chapter 1, and it's tragedy, frankly. Um, and so uh, we're going to spend the month doing this, and we're picking back up. We're going back and forth between here and in small groups or in your own individual stay. So if you're not part of a small group, we'd love to have you join one. Um, and so, like, we're going to stop in verse 13. The small groups are going to do verses 14 through 22. And then I'll be back up here next Sunday preaching on 23 through whatever, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. But, um, and so we, we, we want that because we, we want this to be more of like, hey, how, how are we navigating Scripture together? And the youth are doing the same thing. They're walking through it, right? And so uh, it allows us to all talk about the same thing. Um, I'll just say a quick note. There's calendars in the back of all the chairs. So those are our calendars for, uh, well, sorry, if you're, if, you're, if you're up in the new chairs, right? There's calendars in the back. They're also by the chalkboard out there. So grab a calendar. They've got some stuff. The biggest one is like if you're new here and you haven't been to a TCC Connect, we're going to do that uh, on the 28th of January um, at either mine, Tim, or Brian's house. And um, so we'd, we'd invite you guys to come to that and just talk through the church and who we are and you can ask questions and stuff like that. Um. All right, Ruth, if, if, hopefully you've had enough time to find it. It's, it's, it squeaks by right after Judges, right before Samuel. Uh, it's probably about three pages long in your Bible. So um, uh, I'm going to give you the whole story real quick, okay? Because it, it's going to help in the context of things. I'm going to trip over this. I'm sorry. Hang on one second. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stumble on that one. Be good. Um, so Elimelech, um, I misspoke on, uh, on New Year's Eve. I think I, I call him Mordecai. Uh, different, different book. Um, so Elimelech um, is uh, in Israel. He's a, he's a Jew, and he's married to Naomi. And they, uh, there's a famine in the land, and they move uh, to Moab, um, traditional enemies of Israel. Um, they moved to Moab in the countryside uh, to, to live, to survive. There's a famine in Israel, but there's not in Moab. I went to Google Maps, and I drew a line. You know the distance between the western side of Israel and the eastern side of Moab? It's like 100 miles. It's pretty interesting. You're like, how does a famine happen in, in, in that specific area? Anyway, you guys can ponder that, talk about it in your small groups. But, so, so there's a famine in Israel, and so they go to Moab, okay? Uh, not an hour and a half drive for them, right? It's, it's some traveling. They go, to the, they go to the countryside. They're not in, like, the cities. They're in the countryside, um, and they're making their lives, making a go of their lives um, there. They have two sons, um, and their sons find wives, uh, Moabite wives, and um, traditionally... You know, Jews didn't marry Moabites because, in fact, they were commanded not to. And, um, and so they, get, they have these wives because they're in Moab. And his sons were probably like, you brought me here. <laughs> there's, no, there's no Jewish women around. Um, and so they marry. Elimelech dies. Um, the women are barren. Ten years. The sons die. So 10 years later, Naomi, after, after leaving Israel for this famine, is, finds herself in Moab with two Moabite daughter-in-laws, no other family or community around. Her husband and her two sons have died. So what does she do? And she ends up going back to Israel. Um, and we're going we're gonna to walk through all of this stuff, but she goes back to Israel. Ruth ends up going with her. That's one of the daughter-in-laws. It's the name of the book. Um, uh, Orpha um, stays. Uh, so she stays uh, in Moab. And so Ruth travels back with Naomi. And she, they're widows. Like there's nothing that they can really do. Um, and so she ends up gleaning in the fields, which is basically like picking up the scraps after they go through and plow. And so she gleans. And so she's doing that. She ends up being in a field uh, that's owned by a guy named Boaz who recognizes her. And Boaz ends up being a distant relative of Naomi. And so, um, and so Boaz, and we'll get into this stuff, but redeems, effectively purchases um, Naomi 
and Ruth and their possessions and in a good way, not in like a bad way. And we'll have to work through that as we get through that. But different culture, different times. And, um, and Ruth and Boaz end up having a child. And that child is Obed, who's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, and who obviously is the, the lineage and uh, the Messiah, right, of Jesus. And so that's how this story plays out. That's the end. So it's got a good ending. The problem is, is it doesn't have a good beginning, right? And so this is the story. And it's, it's a very interesting book because first, Ruth is not really the main character. Naomi is. And so you kind of go like, why is it called the book of Ruth? Like, she really doesn't do it. Frankly, their faith is questionable. What they do out of obedience and faith is kind of, maybe. And there's a lot of scholars kind of vary. Like, there's some statements that are made that you're like, so sure that they're like really, you know, sold on, on God here, right? And there's some actions that they do, you know, so anyway, it's just, it's just kind of weird. And so you kind of, you look at the book of Ruth and you go, what's the point? And we walk through this as we did the parables, right? Like we have to be faithful to scripture. What, why is the book of Ruth included in scripture for us? Why did God have this? And oh, by the way, uh, Jewish tradition is that it was written by Samuel, uh, we know that he wrote other books and stuff that we actually don't have, but it says that in, in Chronicles. And, and so um, tradition is that Samuel wrote it, which would make sense, right? Because Samuel uh, is the one that goes and anoints David to be king after Saul. And so maybe there's a little bit of like, well, where did this David guy come from, right? And he goes, well, who's his father? Jesse, who's his father? Obed, where did Obed come from? Uh, a Moabite, a Moabite woman. Like, that's scandalous, frankly, in Jewish lineage. And so, this is the only book in the entire Bible that's named after somebody that's a non-Jew. Like, like, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And so, we walk through this, and we, and, and oh, by the way, God is only mentioned twice in the entire book from the narrator, okay? Like, like Ruth and Naomi, like, they'll talk, they'll reference God in quotes, but the narrator only talks about God in chapter 1, verse 6, which we'll get to today, and then chapter 4, verse 13. That's it. It's the only time that God, and actually the times that God is talking about, or, or the time that God is mentioned is, is um, frankly, a little bit more abstract than, than probably we would, we would think it would be in this book. And so you kind of go, well, what's the point? What's the point of this book? And so there's part of it that's, yeah, the lineage of Christ. Most, most definitely, that, that this is legitimizing and showing where David came from. That's certainly part of it. Um, but probably the biggest point is God's providence. Um, we just sang a line, and I'll forget it again, I'll misquote it, but it was something about God being like in the shadows or something like that, right? And we've talked about this as we walk through the Torah, like where, where God is operating kind of like behind the scenes, if God was mentioned throughout the book of Ruth, he's not behind the scenes. He's, he's in the forefront. But, but instead, as we, as we follow along the narrative of Ruth, it's kind of just these people figuring out life. It's kind of like, it's just like you and me and your family story of like, I did this and then I went here and that didn't work out and I went here and I did, you know. But behind the scenes, you see God's providence. And so we're going to pick that out. But in addition to this, right, what does it say? Redeeming relationships. You see some really in-depth decisions that are made based on relationships. Um, you're going to see in your small groups or in your study this week, Ruth is going to decide to stay with Naomi. That's a big decision. That's a really big decision. And I would encourage you guys, as you guys are talking about that, really spend time on that. Why does she make that decision? What's motivating that? Because it's, 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 it's hugely important for the rest of this book. Um, and then at the end of this thing, the other purpose of it is that Boaz is going to roll in as basically a foreshadowing, a representative of Christ. And you're going to see Boaz come in and redeem. We're going to use this word redeem a ton as we go through Ruth because he redeems, he purchases. Just like Christ has redeemed us, he's purchased us. So Boaz does the same thing. So that's, that's the book of Ruth, okay? That's what we're going to spend the next month on, okay? Uh, but I want us just to calibrate ourselves to know where we're going with this because this morning it's rough it's really rough and we're going to start in Ruth 
chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they weren't moving permanently. They were sojourning. That means it was temporary, right? They were just waiting for the famine to subside, and then they would go back. That was, that was the plan. Um, it's the time of judges. So this is not a, this was not a, the reason why the book of Ruth starts that way, it's not a, it's not a comfortable time. Things aren't going well. Israel's rebelling against God. God sends a nation in to judge them, to destroy them, not completely. He then sends a judge to rescue them. And, and then, and, and it's this cycle over and over. In fact, a few years ago, we preached through judges and it was really rough because they're like, same sermon as last week, questions? <laughs> because it was, it's very cyclical. It's like, they did the same thing again. What, they, these people are dumb. And then, but then we look at ourselves and we're like, isn't that defining of our lives, right? As we kind of go through these cycles of sin and, and uh, faithlessness. And so, um, so this famine Probably part of God's judgment. In fact, if you go back and read Leviticus 26, he says very clearly, if you obey my commandments and my statutes, I'll bring rain. And if you don't, I'll bring famine. And so, so this was likely God just judging them just as if he was bringing in the, the, the Philistines or whomever, and he's judging Israel. He's, he's telling them, hey, like, come back to me. Trust in me. Don't trust in yourselves, right? So it's a tough situation. We just went through the Torah, right? How much of that required them to be present near the temple? In fact, we spent all this time of, like, God was going to Israel to dwell with Israel, to be amongst them, to be with them, right? We read that over and over, to be with them, to be closer and closer and closer. And here they are, they're, they're leaving. Like, there's God. See ya, we gotta go get some food. That's a tough decision. I'm sure that was a tough decision for Elimelech, right? And sometimes we have to make these tough decisions. And so, so as they're doing this, right, like they're not in a good place. They're not like skipping their way to Moab. They're not enjoying this. They're not in a good place. And then Elimelech dies. We can read through this so quick. Listen to what it says in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So Naomi at this point is going, okay, now what do I do? Um, she has sons, so that's good, right? Women, women at this time, they couldn't work. So they, they really, they required a family member. They required a male family member to be providing for them. That's just, that's just how it worked. That's why, that's why you read a lot in the Bible about caring for widows and orphans because they, just, they, don't, they don't have anybody to care for them and so this is, this is the situation. And so she has her two sons. Which, so great. Okay, well, that's good. And then they marry Moabite women. Look at what it says in verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Scholars, if you notice verse 1, it's, it's kind of this abstract. He doesn't even start off with the names of the people. And then even in the end of this verse, it says the woman. It doesn't refer to her as Naomi. There's, there's a very real sense. Most scholars think that like, the intention here is that this is like transferable to you and to me. Like, it's not about Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth and Orpah. Like, it's not about them. It's about the situation. It's about God's providence in this tragedy. And so it, it ends with, there's Naomi and Orpah and, and Ruth, and that's it. And she, Naomi has nothing. She's in a foreign land. She has no hope. She, she's probably about 50 years old at this point. The likelihood of her remarrying is, is pretty minimal. But Orpah and Ruth could, right? Like, they were young enough, that, and they lived in Moab, and so, so this is kind of where the, you, you sit in this predicament. 
and you got to wonder what Naomi's thinking. Um, how do you navigate that? I mean, it's so easy for us to just read this as a story, right? But her husband died. Her spouse died. That's a big deal. Um, and so, certainly she's asking, why is this happening to me, right? I mean, like, that's, why is this happening to me, and what do I do next? Those are the two questions that you ask in tragedy, right? Whatever it is. Um, so, I had a, uh, I had a friend murder about a week ago. He was the one that asked me if I ever thought about eldership. <laughs> I said, what's that? <laughs> um, he has a 12-year-old son, a 15-year-old daughter, and they watched it happen. He was married, his wife watched it. Wife wrestled the lady to the ground. He was like, probably one of the most, like, and I know everybody's like, yeah, people are great, right? But this guy was seriously like another level. <laughs> he was so kind and gentle, and like, like, I know without a doubt, like, not even, you know, like, like, if something happened to me, you might be like, yeah, I could see Jonathan maybe just getting angry. <laughs> like, I got, he, he, he wouldn't have. He didn't. I know he didn't. Like, there's no way. Um, he was just super, just, he was just super pastoral and caring and gentle and loving. And you go, why in the world? How can that make any sense? How can this 12-year-old son Wilson and I were talking about this. Like, imagine like 20 years from now, he's, I don't know, in a small group going to church. Tell me your story. Where are you from? And like, yeah, when I was 12, I saw my dad murdered. I'm like, oh, geez. Like, that's his story. And I don't know. I mean, I, I pray to God that this, that Chris, Christian's his name. And, and Olivia, his daughter, uh, was 50. I mean, same thing, right? Like, I, his wife, I, and I don't mean to minimize it, but she's got she's an adult and she's got faith and she's got a strong faith and I have no doubt like like confident in that, but these kids, man, they're fragile. This is a tough time. So we ask questions, why? And of course I'm we plan to be preaching on Ruth one from like two months ago. And I'm like, this is gonna be fantastic because this is gonna be really challenging to preach through because she goes, Why? Naomi says, Why? Why does this happen? And we've asked that. Why tragedy? Why, why disease? And why medical problems? And why relationship problems? And why, why do these things happen? If God is for us like we sing, if he loves us, and he's all-powerful, you tell me, how does this work? You have an all-powerful God. Don't, don't give him an excuse. He's all-powerful, but he loves us. Okay, so then don't let these things happen to us. Let bad people kill bad people, and let good people just hang out. Isn't that kind of how we think? This is really, this is, this is really challenging, right? Because this is the point where your faith becomes Defined. Bad things could happen because God's disciplining you. Right? Could be. God doesn't just punish you, right? He disciplines you for your good. So it could be. But that's not the case with Job. 
Things just happen. In fact, God's bragging about Job. Job's like, stop. Stop. Don't talk about me like that. And so we, we got to ask this question. Um, and, and it's okay to ask why. I think Larry, Larry mentioned that. It's okay to ask why. There's a way to ask why of God without doubting God's goodness. Without questioning him, we can still ask questions of him. And, and I think that's a good thing, and we, should be, we, we shouldn't be afraid of doing that. We should be able to say, God, help me to understand this. But, but we also have to pair that with our finite temporal minds, that we don't, we don't see the whole thing, right? We don't see the big picture. And so we go, God, help me understand. Why would you do such a thing? Why would you allow something like that to happen? So before I get on to verse 6, I, I think I'd like to just kind of equip us a little bit with this. And maybe, maybe, this, is, maybe this is what we need in 2024 is to be equipped with how to, how to handle this stuff. And wh- what does it mean when we say, you know, I'm standing on a, a, the, the, whatever we're saying, <laughs> the rock or the solid ground, right? Like, like what does it mean when we're saying that? They're not just like fun things to say. So we, we want God to stop murders. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Um, does that include, like, the, do you want him to stop you when you get angry? We want him to stop human trafficking. Do we want him to stop when you're looking at something inappropriate on the computer? We, we want him to stop these things, but if he were to stop everything that's evil, he's got to stop all of us. Right? Like, it's the million small things that, that we do. Like, this lady that, that committed this murder, like, she didn't live in a vacuum, right? She had parents, maybe siblings, she had friends, she had somebody around her at some point in her life. What happened? You see, we contribute to the tragedies that we blame God for. Like, if God's going to get rid of evil, he's got to get rid of all of us. And I, I just don't think we appreciate that because we just we go, well, that's a really bad thing. Just stop those things. And he's like, but it's just the same. It's all the same. And so instead of stopping all of these things, what does God do? He endures all of these things just like we're enduring them. In fact, if you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, Verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why does he, why does he deal with and endure evil? Because in the midst of that, somebody is going to come to faith. In the midst of, and, and Peter's specifically talking about Jesus coming back, right? And so he's saying like, well, if Jesus came back now, then, then that's it. But, but God's enduring this because there's more people that are going to come to faith 
And so God's enduring the sin, the pervasiveness of evil that is spreading across his entire creation. He's enduring that. He has endured that for millennium. You've endured it not even for a century. And he continues to endure. Why? Because he's trying to save more. He's patient. If you turn over to Revelation chapter 21. God is going to stop evil. We know that's going to happen. This isn't forever, right? Look at Revelation 21 verse 4. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Like, he's going to stop evil. He's going to stop everything that causes you to mourn, or to cry, to weep. He's going to stop it. And And so we exclaim, come Jesus, come. Right? We want Jesus to come. We want him to come back because... We see this, we see the evil, and and we see the tragedies in our own lives, and we go, evil's just everywhere. And God goes, yeah, it is. That's why I sent my son. That's why I'm solving this. Romans chapter 8. You know, I hear this all the time that this is like one of these verses, 828, that people are like, when people are going through tough things, don't use this verse. I just have a problem with that. Because I'm like, but this is, this is God's word and he gives it to us specifically for this. He says in Romans 828, and we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I guarantee you our friend Sarah is going, how is this working for good? It's a good good question, right? She should be asking that. She can say, God, I don't understand what could possibly be good about this. Um, and yet, this is where your faith is put on a pedestal and you go, okay, what does my faith look like? Do I believe this? Do I believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose? This means that Nothing in your life is meaningless. Think about that. I stole that from John Piper. He had this great thing. Like, he's like, it's not meaningless. Every second of your day has meaning if you're a child of God, right? Because he's forming and shaping and working in you. He's working all things. Tragedy, good things, bad, everything. He's, he's working together to do what? To shape you, to transform you, to renew you into the image of his son. And so absolutely everything is purposeful and meaningful. And so Sarah and Christian and Olivia, my prayer is that they see that, right? That they remember that, that they go to Romans 8.28 and they're like, I know that even though this is just horrible, that God is working all things out. And man, isn't this like, this is the cross? Isn't that exactly what happens? Here's Jesus on the cross. Well, that's horrible. That's tragedy. But that defeated death for us. He works this out, right? Satan thinks he's winning. Evil thinks it's winning in all of this. And in the midst of it, God's turning every single piece to grow you, to mature you, to nurture you. It's for your good. We have to think that. We have to because this is what Scripture tells us. This isn't just like, This isn't some like wishful thinking thing, right? This isn't like, 
the, the what is it called, uh, positive mental, you know, like we don't just regurgitate sayings that are positive to, to convince ourselves that it's okay. No, this is, this is scripture. This is what God says. God says, this is what I am doing. When you go through a tragedy, this is what I'm doing. When you go through medical problems and diagnoses and all of these things and relationships are failing, he goes, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing something here. And it may be for you, and it may not even be for you. It may be just so that your peace and joy in the midst of these trials and tribulations reflect to somebody who knows you, and they come to trust in Christ because they go, how does this person have joy and peace in the midst of this tragedy? Maybe it's, a, it's, a, it's you being an ambassador for Christ in that moment. So there's so many pieces and parts of this, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 16. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. In other words, when you're, when you're watching yourself get older in the mirror, right? When you're, when you're, when you're it's taking a little bit longer to stand up, when as you're a young, you know, like when, when things are falling apart around you, not, not just yourself physically, things break, relationships fail, right? When all these things are wasting away, he goes, I'm renewing day by day, and then this is what he says in verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction. <laughs> this is Paul. Like, light, momentary affliction. Like, dude man's been through it. And he's murdered people himself. Right? And you're like... And he's been in jail, right? And he's, he's been beaten and he, he goes through all of that, right? Like, like, and he goes, it's light and momentary affliction. You go, I'm sorry, Paul. Mine doesn't feel light and momentary. It feels like it's enduring and it's very difficult. But listen to what he says. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light affliction, this weight of glory. That's what he's saying. He's like, in comparison to the eternal glory and grace that you're going to be dwelling in the presence of God with, this is pretty small. There is no tragedy that we can go through that offsets the eternal weight of glory that God has in store for those who are his children. None. You know why? Because it's all going to end. And that's not ever. You guys with me on this? Right? This is, this is why our theology, our understanding of God, has to inform our emotions and not our emotions inform our theology. Right? And we come at God and we go, well, this doesn't make any sense, God. I'm questioning who you are. I'm questioning your character. Because our emotions are going, it doesn't feel right. I don't like it. I don't understand it. And so here's my feelings. No. No. Understand who God is and allow that to inform your emotions and feelings and go, I feel this way, but I know I shouldn't feel this way, God. I'm asking you questions, not because I'm questioning you, but because I want to understand you more. I want to understand your ways. I want to see what you're doing. I want to see this stuff behind the scenes. And maybe God will give you that purview. He might. Sometimes he does. But maybe you won't get it until you see this weight of glory, until you're with him in his presence, and then you're going to go, I see it clearly. See what you did. And I, I, think, I think there's going to be no mourning or tears because you're going to look at that and you're going to be like, that was totally worth it. It was totally worth it. And it might not even be because God did anything in you and it might not even be because anybody you know. Like it might, it might be these ripple effects that are so far removed from you and God's like, this is the scale I work on. 
And you're like concerned about just like your little thing, right? Back up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Wait, sorry, never mind. Go to one more verse, 418. Thanks. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. One more after that. This weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This light affliction, it's transient, it's temporal, it's going to go away. I don't know if it's going to go away while you're still alive, but it's definitely going to go away when you're dead. Right? Because to be absent in the body is to be present with Christ. And so when this is done, guess where you're going to be if you're a child of God. Right? Praise God. Okay, now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So what's God doing in all this? He's working out all things for the good of those who love him. Look at what he says here in verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Like, in other words, he's saying, when we're going to God, when we're worshiping God, when we're, when we're children of God, when we spend time beholding God, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God's renewing you. He's transforming you into the likeness of his son. That's what he's doing. Things that are unseen. He's changing your character. Like, as a parent, you raise up your kids and you're like, I, I want them to have good character. And you do different things. And you make them run back and forth to the shed to go get tools. You know, stuff like that. Right? Um, works the quads. Um, and, and um, but you have them do these things. But you, but you really want them to have character. But what, what can you do as a parent to build character in your kids? I mean, you hopefully model good character and then you pray, <laughs> right? Well, you know, you, I mean, you put some boundaries and you do some things as, they're ra- as you're raising them, but, but when they, I mean, like it's, it's, it's God that does that stuff. God works in people. Not you. You can't change anybody's heart. We've talked about this before, right? You can't save anybody. You can't rationalize to somebody who Christ is and like they're going to be like, oh, I totally understand everything now. Now I'm a believer. You can't change a heart, a rebellious heart. God does that. The Holy Spirit does that. And so we pray and hope that, that that's what happens. And so this is what he says. He's like, for those who are my children, I mean, I'm transforming you, I'm renewing you, and I'm working all these light momentary afflictions. Like, so when Naomi's walking through this, she didn't have all that. I mean, she had the Old Testament. She probably had some of the Psalms. She didn't even have all the Old Testament. Because she was living through about half of it, right? Well, she was in about halfway through. But she had the Torah. And what did we read in the Torah? That God wants to dwell with us. That he's for us. That he calls us his people. There's a relationship there. She knew that God was for her. She could have known that God was for her. Here's the problem. She's in Moab. Who does she have saying these things to her? Her two, her two Moabite daughters-in-law? You see, this becomes really important because we need to say these scriptures to each other. We need to be able to confront each other. We need to be able to say, hey, Romans 8.28 says this. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm reminding you because, because these are the things that we've got to stand on. These are the truths that God gave us. So, what does Naomi do with this tragedy? What do we do with this tragedy? What, where do you go from there? So, you, so you, you remind yourself of these truths. You, you wrap yourselves around with a, inside of a community. This is why God gives us the church. It is. It very much is. This isn't just a place to come hear somebody yammer or sing some good songs. It's not the point. It's this. It's a community. And so that we can, we can walk through tragedy together, just like Larry talked about, right? And we can, we can go through good times together and, and bad times together, and, and, you know, we can encourage each other and equip each other. And so what do we do? The worst thing we could do is go huddle in a corner. But that's kind of how we feel sometimes, right? I just want to go in a corner. 
curl up and not relate to anybody. <laughs> and that's probably how Naomi felt it. We're going to walk through the rest of Ruth here. And we're going to see that she's going to start making some decisions and stuff. And it's not, there's nothing profound about her decisions. They're very, they're very normal decisions, very pragmatic. But we're going to watch that like God doesn't cause this tragedy or allow this tragedy to happen in her life without meaning. There's purpose behind it. And it's for Naomi. And it's going to be for Ruth. It's going to be for Boaz. But you know who else it's for? For all of us. Thousands of years later, here we are reading this story. You think Naomi thought about that? <laughs> Guarantee you she didn't. You see, we, we forget that these stories are like, like, they're not just like nursery rhyme. Like God's, God's putting them here so that we, thousands of years later, he's like, no, this will be good because I'm looking forward to this being preached, <laughs> right? Like, he's not saying that to Naomi. Hey, don't worry about it. People are going to be telling the, your, your, your life story for years to come, right? But God knows. So, verse 6 in Ruth. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. It's the first time that Yahweh is mentioned. First of two. So why did she return? Wouldn't it have been nice to say if, if God was like, and then Naomi recognized that she needed a community of believers to be around. And so she went back and she missed Yahweh and the sacrifices in the temple. And so she returned to her people. She's like, Where's the food? It's very pragmatic. And, I and as we're going to walk through this, I'm walking through it with you. And I'm like, I don't know where Naomi's faith was. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. So she set out, verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. You see, for Naomi, her gig's over in, in Moab. She's not going to be able to find a husband there. She, you know, she's got to go back to Judah, to Israel. But, but Ruth and, and Orpah, like, they can stay. They can stay and they can probably find. So, so for Naomi, here, here's the problem. In the midst of this tragedy, she's got this relationship. Obviously, clearly a strong relationship with her daughters-in-law. Clearly, right? Like, they're weeping. Like, like, I am sure the death of her husband and the death of her sons, like, bonded them together in a very real, tangible sense. So much so that Ruth and Orpah are, like, going with her back to Israel. Like, they're leaving Moab, Right? And Naomi now has to make this really tough decision. She's like, would she want these two daughters-in-law to go with her? Yeah, they're the, she, they're, that's a relationship that she has that's really strong. But she's thinking about them, and she's like, if you come to Israel, like nobody's going to marry you in Israel. You can't, you can't be married because you're a Moabite. So there's, there's no way, so this tragedy just kind of, is even worse, right? Because there's no way that their relationship can stay together and Naomi be provided for and the girls be provided for. Like, it's like this, it's stuck between a rock and a hard place. She's like, I, I have to, like, no kidding, cut everything off. I lost my husband, I lost my sons, and I have to allow my daughters-in-law to leave me as well. I have to. It's the right thing to do. Verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? So because like that was the only option, right? And the only option was that like Naomi could have more sons and then like they could marry them. 
because she was related, right? But like they wouldn't be able to find anybody else in Israel. And so she goes down this hypothetical. And she says, turn back, my daughters. Go your own way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should, I, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? This relationship that they have is profound. It's impactful. Naomi's really struggling with this. Ruth and Orpah are really struggling with this. They're in the midst of tragedy. They're like, now what do we do? And listen to Ruth's, or Naomi's conclusion here. In the second part of verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So what's Naomi's conclusion right now? That God is against her. This is where she's at. This is where her faith is at. And, and maybe, maybe you're there. Maybe you're like, I, I feel like God's just against me. I will tell you scripturally, that's not the case. We just read this, right? We just read all those reasons why, how we handle tragedy and how we know that God is for us. He's renewing us. He's transforming us. He's doing all these things. But where does Naomi land? He hates me. He's punishing me. The Lord's hand is against me. And so that's where Naomi leaves this. But Naomi's theology is wrong. She's wrong. Right? And, and I've already told you the end of the story. The Messiah is going to come from what happens next. This setup was required. Her husband had to die. Her sons had to die. I don't know. I don't know how to navigate that. But we can go back and we dwell on Scripture and we know that God is for us. And so in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of all these things, we don't handle it like Naomi does. We don't say, God's hand must be against me. No. Now, he could be disciplining you, but it's still for your good and his glory, right? He's still renewing you. He's still transforming you. So discipline still exists. I don't know. Scholars debate whether Naomi was being disciplined. Was it right for them to leave Israel and go to Moab? I don't know. It was wrong for, remember this in the Torah? It was wrong for Abraham to go to Egypt. It was wrong for Isaac to go to Egypt. It was good for Jacob to go to Egypt. So I don't know. People, people debate this. It really doesn't matter. Because what matters is God's providence in the midst of this. And we know by the end of the book of Ruth, clearly this is part of God's providential plan. And so if you're a child of God in here, guess what you can know? Nothing that happens to you is meaningless. Praise God. It is all for your good and his glory. And so we can rest on that and we can allow our theology to inform our emotions. Let me pray.